Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Alice Ferris, founding partner of Goldbusters, started her fundraising career and her long affiliation with public broadcasting as a volunteer at Wisconsin Public Television in Madison, Wisconsin, blowing bubbles onto the set during pledge breaks for the Lawrence Welk Show. Alice was the 90th professional worldwide to receive the Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive Credential, serves on the ACFRE Credentialing Board, as well as the CFRE International Board, and the Wisconsin School of Business Bolt Center for Arts Administration Advisory Board. She was also chair of the recent AFP Icon. You may recognize Alice and her voice for her on-air presence on many public television and radio pledge drives, including top revenue generating fundraisers such as those for Downton Abbey, Ken Burns, America's Storyteller, The Civil War, and others. Alice, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you, Jay, for the invitation. I, I wanna jump in talking about early memories, if you don't mind. I know you're from Wisconsin, yes. Um, and we could talk about a lot of things to do with Wisconsin, but people may not know uh, that y you were from, I guess, the first Asian family in your county, and your parents <laughs> are from Taiwan. Is that right? That is correct. My parents moved to, of all places, Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, in the late '60s, and I was the first Chinese baby born at Beaver Dam Lutheran Hospital and my sister was the second. And we like to joke that almost everything that our family did for at least the first couple years seemed to make the local weekly paper. <laughs> uh, what was that experience like as a kid to, be, uh, to have such notoriety? The interesting thing about that was that I know sometimes people have asked, you know, was it, was it really, isolating, where you picked on a lot, all of that stuff. And at the beginning part of my life, it wasn't that. It was, in many respects, because we moved to a very, very small town in rural Wisconsin, and because we were the only Asian family in Dodge County, people were very protective of us. And, and so in many respects, I, I felt like <laughs> almost a little princess, I guess. And it's not to say that uh, discrimination didn't happen. It's not to say that it was all perfect and no one was a racist and that I never experienced racism. But I think the, I had a bubble around me where the people were really, frankly, good at protecting me from, from experiencing, like, experiencing a lot of that stuff. And so early on, it was, it was, my memories are mostly idyllic and it really wasn't until later in life and later in my career that I, I really started to experience things that you might assume someone would experience as being a minority in a majority white community. Hmm. Well, it, it does sound kind of idyllic, at least at the start. And I know that uh, you, you talk in, in some of your uh, interviews and your writing about um, a very early interaction, not just with the local paper, but with public media, which became such a big part of your life. 
And, and I saw this reference to you saying that um, you saw Mr. Rogers live. Yes. I, I didn't even know Mr. Rogers did those live broadcasts. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I, I hate to burst your bubble, Jay, but it wasn't actually Mr. Rogers. <laughs> oh. What? So what they, was did, it? they did uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood themed live shows. Mm -hmm. So similar to what Sesame Street still does and what a lot of the other children's programs do, you have people who dress up as the, the characters and they do a live show. So the, the human actors in many respects are not in the show, but it's, mo it's mostly the, the, the more cartoony type characters. So Purple Panda would show up for a live show or... Um, <laughs> I think Henrietta Pussycat was occasionally in it and mm -hmm. um, Owl was usually in it. And so you would have those characters, the kind of the bigger than life characters who would be part of the show. Daniel Striped wow. Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you remember every character's name really does suggest this made a big impression. <laughs> well, although even though I didn't see um, Mr. Rogers himself live in a show, I do have hanging in my office and I've had hanging in my office since I got my first full-time job, two pictures that are framed into one, one frame, kind of a collage frame. And it is from when I was, oh, probably about 18 months old. And it's my mom and I in LaGuardia airport with Mr. Rogers, <laughs> because the way my dad tells the story is that we're off on a family vacation and all of a sudden, my mom carrying me runs away. And my and she's chasing after this man. And my dad's wondering, what the heck is going on here? So what does he do? He chases after her to figure out what's going on. And she, he finally catches up to them and finds my mom at one of the gates talking to Mr. Rogers. And so there's my dad, of course, is uh, in many respects, a stereotypical Asian tourist and has a camera around his neck all the time. And so he pulls the camera out and quickly snaps a couple pictures of myself, my mom, and Mr. Rogers when I was about 18 months old. So that is kind of my first experience with public broadcasting. <laughs> but you said there are two pictures hanging in your office. What's the other one? Well, it's it's two pictures of me and Mr. Oh. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> Double billing. That that says a lot. Did did you now you've you've spent a lot of time with with media, um, public broadcasting over the years. Do you ever meet him again? Aside from when you were eighteen months old. Unfortunately, no. And and that's one of those things that frustrates me a little bit. Is a lot of people assume that since I've been doing a lot of public television, national uh, on-air fundraising for PBS over the years. And for the first run of Downton Abbey, I was in all of the national pledge breaks for mm -hmm. Downton Abbey. And I am, I swear, one of the few PBS professionals that has never met any of the cast of Downton Abbey. And I find that really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so I, although there are some people I will admit that I got to meet that were just really incredibly genuine people. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the person who immediately comes to mind is Emmy Lou Harris, who I oh. got to meet shooting a, a pledge special. And she's just a genuinely nice woman who is, her first instinct is to ask you how you are and 
and try to make you as comfortable as possible. So she was just a delight. But this uh, this was never about celebrity for you. It sounds like you just sort of they you became on air talent, uh, I guess because you had that that ability. But how how did that start? I mean, I know you blew bubbles on the Lawrence Welk show when you were sixteen <laughs> or something. But how did this start that you started doing on air? So that is an interesting story because I never wanted to be on the air, and I was a on-air fundraising producer at Wisconsin Public Television. And while I didn't officially have that title, that was part of my overall responsibilities as a development associate. Hmm. And I started doing that as a part-time staff person because I was the one person originally that was just assigned to write, put together the outlines for the for the breaks. And then I started making it as, as I do a lot of things, I started to make it more detailed and probably more complicated than it needed to be. And I ended up producing for several years. And as part of that role of producing, you have to coach the talent. And that meant I ran rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And every now and then we wouldn't have enough people for a full rehearsal set. So I would have to jump in and do stuff. So my boss saw a couple of these and when I moved into the position full-time, he told me part of the deal of you becoming full-time in this position is that you have to go on the air. Oh, I don't want to go on the air. No, Alice, this is not, this is not a choice. You have to go on the air. So I ended up, <laughs> back to Mr. Rogers for a moment, I ended up being scheduled to be on a Mr. Rogers special. So it was a Saturday morning. Frankly, it was a really low risk time slot. So if I was terrible, it wouldn't really matter all that much. And my first break on the air live was horrendous. Just, I'm so glad there is not videotape of this because it was just terrible. Every stereotype you have of freezing up for being on the air for the first time, I did. And I was just deflated. I was just crushed after that break. And my boss, Malcolm Brett, um, who recently retired from public broadcasting, who to, to this day is one of my best mentors. He said to me, well, the good news, Alice, you got all of the difficult stuff out in the first break. So you'll be fine in the next break. <laughs> and for some reason, that was the right thing to say to me. And I don't even know why but it completely clicked with me. And the next time that red tally light came on, I was fine. And I've been pretty much fine ever since then. What I've discovered is that being on air and doing that piece about uh, appealing to people to support public media has is one of the things I enjoy the most. I really, really love doing it. And that's kind of bled into other stuff that I do uh, either in presentations or online or on camera or whatever, where I really love doing that bit where I'm either teaching or presenting or communicating with someone through through a media uh, channel. So mm -hmm. I, I really, I do enjoy that. Although nowadays I probably spend far less time on camera for public media than I do with public radio. I'm spending far more time on public radio and over the course of the last several years have become a much better radio producer than I ever anticipated I would become. You know, as you're talking about this, um, I know that fundraising and specifically fundraising for 
public broadcasting is just a just a part of your portfolio. You have a, a broader life where you're working with lots of organizations to help them grow. Um, but media hasn't has had an issue uh, that maybe fundraising is also experiencing, and that's a kind of a crisis of trust. But it hasn't necessarily affected public broadcasting in the same way, or at least. I know you've talked about this in the past in interviews where you talked about how there's there is trust or at least there has been trust in public media and uh public broadcasting but I'm wondering as you work with uh with organizations generally and broadcasting specifically to help build trust to build relationships with the fund which are the foundation of people in making these philanthropic investments what where you see uh, opportunities for organizations to build trust that perhaps is eroded. The thing about trust is that in many respects, all of the philanthropic sector is asking people to do something that is inherently illogical. Hmm. We're asking people to part with their hard earned resources to voluntarily give it away to an organization that they don't have to support, that they don't have to give money to. And really, the only way for that to be sustainable in the long term is for people to genuinely trust the organization that they're supporting. Mm -hmm. And I think that this time of coronavirus and a global pandemic has really made the cracks in our sector more visible, but also made those that were already strong even stronger because there are definitely those causes that are going to not make it through this but there are i think far more that are going to end up stronger coming through this and you know that old phrase of what does not kill me makes me stronger mm -hmm. um, i think that a lot of people are going to be a lot stronger in this because they've used this as an opportunity to build trust and the way that i think a lot of these organizations have built trust is instinctive in that they've allowed themselves to be a little bit more vulnerable than maybe they have been in the past. Because there are a lot of charities that I'm aware of, um, not many that I've worked with, frankly, but a lot of charities that I'm aware of that have a very clear brand identity. You know, they have their specific way that they are supposed to present themselves. And it is supposed to come from a position of strength and a position of impact and a position of being a really important part of making things better in their particular sector or cause. And they're not always as willing to demonstrate that there are humans involved in the organization. Mm -hmm. And those organizations that have been willing to be human are the ones that are doing just fine right now, that, that are really thriving in many respects right now. And there was a, a book that I just recently started reading called um, Marketing Revolution. And I'm trying to remember who, uh, Mark Schaefer is the author. Um, no, I, I misspoke. It's Marketing Rebellion uh, mm -hmm. by Mark Schaefer. And the subtitle of the book is The Most Human Company Wins. And I really think that is something that if we haven't already taken to heart in the nonprofit sector, we should take to heart, is that the most human charity wins. And the most human, the, the people who are most willing to be human with their donors are the ones that are gonna be able to connect with people better. You've been working with a lot of uh, 
I don't know if you call them small or midsize, we define these things differently, but organizations that are kind of growth organizations. And you've made that choice for, for a reason. Is it is it in part um, you get to work with these organizations that are kind of close to the mission? Or what motivates you to do that? I think part of it is is that most of my experience has been with small organizations, smaller organizations. I mean, I started at Wisconsin Public Television, which is not a tiny organization, but in many respects was a smaller department within the much larger institution of the University of Wisconsin. So in spite of the fact that I was one member of a 17-person team, I felt like we had the ability to be nimble. And, oh gosh, using that word in this time of, <laughs> in the current era, I. It's overused, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's, I think the organizations that I've worked with have been able to adapt much more quickly than larger institutions that tend to have a lot of systems in place to keep the institution going. And I have almost always, I think pretty much my entire life, have chafed against that level of process and bureaucracy. And it's not to say that I haven't worked for larger institutions. I've worked in healthcare, I've worked in education, where you do have systems that you have to understand. And in fact, I would say that my experience with a healthcare institution is what led me to what I consider the brand promise of Goalbusters, which is I just flippantly to somebody at this healthcare institution, I said, you know, you're telling me a lot of ways that I can't do something. Don't tell me how I can't do it. Tell me how I can. Mm -hmm. And that is really what we focus on with Goalbusters is the when we start working with a charity as a partner, because we do consider ourselves an extension of that organization's team. We're not there to say, here's all the things you can't do. Here's all the things you're doing wrong, blah, 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 blah. It's the we try to understand what they want to accomplish and give them the tools to accomplish that. And it may not be in the way that they think they can accomplish it. So they may have in their in their head, we have to do a capital campaign for $5 million and we have to get all of that money from major donors. We may come in and decide, based on your donor base, $5 million is not realistic. However, we understand that you need to do this project. So how can we make that happen? And, and so, I think with smaller organizations, they're more embracing of that idea of tell me how I can. And mm. again, to your point about the size of what a small to medium sized organization may be different mm. from day to day, but it's really about that sense of growth mindset and nimbleness. Are they also more likely to be authentic in the way you were describing before, kind of honest about who they are, more human? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I do think that a lot of the organizations that we work with are more concerned about being human than about preserving the process. And so I, I do appreciate those those organizations that have that ability to be a little bit more human. And as we look forward and think about these organizations and the particular challenge they have right now, um, especially organizations that might have a staff or, you know, it, it, ongoing costs, maybe a facility, something like that, but they don't necessarily have a, a large endowment, if any endowment at all. Um, 
what's the biggest challenge for them? How are you helping them to, to meet that challenge right now? Well, definitely there are some organizations that are doing better now because they had the flexibility and the reserves to be able to weather through more difficult times. And those are the ones <laughs> that we were lucky enough to start working with because they wanted to go over and above. They wanted to improve as opposed to the organizations that are really struggling and kind of have to get up to neutral before they can move forward on things. I think organizations right now, I, I struggle with this because there are definitely the, the words in the lexicon that have been added during the coronavirus virus crisis is this idea of essential and non-essential services. And I'm really pushing back on that because there are a lot of organizations in the nonprofit sector that were categorized as quote unquote non-essential services that I believe are essential. Particularly my latest soapbox is the performing arts and arts or arts and culture organizations in general, where there's this stereotype of, oh, well, arts, it's just the fluffy stuff. You don't really need the arts. And yet, as people have been in six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks, more than that, weeks of quarantine or shelter at home, what have they been turning to? What have they been trying to connect with and it's been for the most part you know once you get past TikTok and cat videos it's been <laughs> arts organizations that they've been connecting with i think my favorite example of this is yo-yo ma and the concert the mini concerts he's been doing on twitter of just himself performing these little bits of amazing cello pieces and it's yo-yo ma and I, I dare you to not feel better after listening to Yo-Yo Ma for a couple of minutes. Well, that was, so, I was going to ask you what you're turning to for that, that bit of, uh, of inspiration and motivation, because you're, you're putting a lot of your energy out to help others, but you have to keep uh, the spirit full too. And, and for you, it's been, we can all see this on your Instagram and Twitter account, you're out there. <laughs> talking about food, enjoying food, taking pictures of food. Yeah, the, the arts and culture are a big part of your life. What sustains you now? So that's a question that I struggle with because as, as you know, Jim and I travel a lot. Uh, Jim Anderson, my partner, and I travel a lot. And normally, under normal circumstances, I would be traveling over 200 days this year. Obviously that's not happening. And initially, the idea of shelter at home didn't bother me all that much because I had a bazillion things that I needed to catch up on. And in many respects, with people changing over to a virtual environment, there was more for me to do than ever. So I was ridiculously busy for the first month of quarantine. And in many respects, the the thing that I turned to was not anything unusual. It was my usual routine. I have a very specific morning ritual that I go through that includes meditation, that includes some kind of movement, um, that includes journaling and those type of things. So those kind of sustained me for 
most of this time. I've I kind of hit a turning point a couple weeks ago where you know that sense of dread hits you of the what's what's the quote unquote new normal and because we're not going back to what we were before there's no way we're going back to anything that's going to resemble the life that we knew before and what does that mean for my work what does that mean for my volunteer service what does that mean for the other things the people that i interact with and frankly to your point what does that mean for my experience at restaurants <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it is all different and right now i think i'm still processing that and what i've turned to really is taking some time for introspection and really doing my own kind of mini retreats to to go through my thoughts and think about how i can find the positive in this so that is kind of a non-answer to your question but it, it is really about, I've had to kind of turn within. Well, I know you're thinking about this, not just from the perspective of, of who you work with um, and help to grow and, and maybe even do your own daily rituals to keep you going, but family. And we started by talking about family. So your son, I believe is 19. Uh, you mm -hmm. talked about that in StoryCorps. My son is 19 as well. Um, their experience growing up maybe is a little different from yours and, and from mine because the world's a little different. So when you look forward, and you think about the experience of our kids in this new non-normal, what kinds of things are you thinking about? Matthew and I joked about this yesterday, in fact, because we were on a, a family video call with, mm -hmm. with my parents and my sister. And Matthew, people were asking him, so, has this been all really weird because you're supposed to be going to school at Concordia University in Montreal right now and instead you're at home and his response was eh it's not that all different from what I did before I'm still online and I'm still on my computer it's just in a different room mm -hmm. and in fact he also joked he says the outdoors I don't know this server that you speak of <laughs> <laughs> And, but the thing I think I, I worry about sometimes is that the, the being able to interact with people outside of your comfort zone is something that Matthew's generation and your child's generation are going to have to be more conscious about. They're really going to have to think more about how do we intentionally reach out to people that we wouldn't otherwise be able to connect with. That's something that I talked with my friend Chad Barger about, where he said, I totally miss those accidental happenstance meetings at conference happy hours, because we don't have that right now. We don't have the ability to accidentally bump into people. And so while we are deepening our current networks and we're still and we're reaching out to other people that we're already connected to, we're not having that opportunity to add to our networks as much. So being able to encourage Matthew's generation to be more proactive and how we give them that those tools is something that I'm going to be watching over the next couple of years. Right. Thank you so much, Alice. Really appreciate your telling us a bit about uh, your background, um, your work, and your family. Thank you, Jay. It's been a pleasure. 
The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.